You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Not so bad. Yourself? Good. Hey, I was wondering if we could break from not having the Identity at the Center podcast be a commercial. Because what I want to do is just do a commercial for our friend Vittorio and his podcast called Identity Unlocked. I was listening to it last night, the most recent episode, um, and he was talking about the skim standard. And, you know, I just listen, I, I can't say I listen to every episode of this podcast, but I think if you're listening to Identity at the Center, you ought to give Vittorio's podcast a try as well. I mean, it's just fantastic. It is good. Yeah, definitely. And he actually broke the news with us uh, when he was starting that. I guess it was a year ago, maybe two years ago, uh, whenever this uh, kind of started around. So, yeah, definitely. I think there's plenty of space uh, or plenty of room in the in the identity podcast space, uh, considering it is such a small area. Um, but definitely check it out. Identity Unlocked. It's something that Vittorio does with Auth0. Uh, I'll put a link in our show notes. And uh, we're actually going to see Vittorio, I think, next week, either Sunday or maybe Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday at the Authenticate Conference in Seattle. Uh, where we're going to be presenting, but it'll be cool to to hang out with some of the identorati, uh, as uh, I guess we like to be called. I don't. Know, I say I'm weird saying we. I don't feel like I'm part of that crew, but um, it'll be cool to see uh, you know some familiar faces or at least familiar voices. And uh, it'll be my first, I guess, first business travel in almost 18 months. So I'm looking forward to that. I feel the same way with the identorati tag. Uh, but we have a, a real OG member of the Adenerati uh, with us today. Uh, she'll let us know if we qualify. And uh, the only recommendation I have for Vittorio on the podcast, because I, and I just came up with this about two seconds ago, which is to number the episodes, because I was going to say, here's how many episodes he had, but he doesn't number his episodes. So I really don't know the answer, but he's pretty consistent. And um, like I said, the content's fantastic. A little more technical a little more focused on you know the standards and the and the folks who are involved with the creation of the standards uh that we we so desperately need in the identity management space uh but it's a it's it's just really great again yeah it's definitely pretty cool and yeah they do get definitely more technical than we do i think they record it almost like a tv show i think they record like five six seven or eight in a kind of in a row and then they release it like netflix style you know once a week for a period of weeks which is different than how we do it we're usually scrambling at the last minute <laughs> like here's something we we're recording and uh, i gotta get it edited and put you know put online you know for the following monday whatever it may be or maybe it might be a week or two in advance but um yeah it's definitely something worth checking out it's identity locked unlocked um on the auth zero uh, website for sure um what do you say we get into uh talking about our guests not talking about our guests but talking with our guest uh about the report they just issued um let's go ahead and welcome eve mailer back to the program she's fordrox chief technology officer and chief humanitarian welcome back to the show eve it's really nice to be with you guys Hi. I always I always enjoy seeing your smiling face in the window here. Um, <laughs> the last time you were on was episode 48, would have been June of 2020. And we talked about the Fordrock 2020 breach report. Um, and now you're back again. And we, what we want to do is talk about 
the 2021 breach report and some of the findings that kind of came up uh, with that. But before we get to that, you know, what's new? Anything new happened in the last year or so for you? Oh, it's been a really boring year. Nothing really. No, of course, there's been a bunch of stuff. I mean, for one thing, and I know you guys are going to want to quiz me about this later, but, you know, where I am, we've been getting a lot more artificial intelligence infused and so that's been a really great journey, and I'm, I'm looking forward to maybe debating that with you, Jeff. <laughs> I am a little bit of a skeptic, so I will try to um, temper my expectations, but I'll be <laughs> honest, anytime I hear, you know, AI and a security project, I think, okay, um, let's let's figure out what, what the real thing is here. Well, you know, there's, there's kind of like an argument to be made that, you know, AI as it was conceived of in science fiction is like, well, we'll, we'll never achieve that. And so we'll just redefine what AI means. But I think, you know, we've got some practical tools now that are, they're worth looking at, they're worth talking about. And I don't know, we, we've been applying them to identity governance and administration, which has been a tough area to, you know, get satisfaction in. So it's, it's, it's a pretty fun ride so far. Yeah, I think uh, that's typically the the sore spot that I see when it comes to AI and IGA specifically. I know that that was kind of the buzzword around um, you know, like roles and what are people doing with accesses? So uh, I'm definitely going to want to pick your brain about, okay, so how do we solve for this? Because every company struggles with, you know, this concept of least privilege versus zero trust versus no standing privilege. <laughs> what is the right mix? Is there a right mix? What makes sense? Um, and I don't know if there's necessarily one right answer. I think it, it's different for every organization. But uh, like you said, we'll, we'll cover that in a little bit. Why don't we shift over to talking about this breach report? Because I think there's some really interesting findings. Um, Jim, why don't you go ahead and uh, start us off? Yeah. So, I, I mean, the first thing I wanted to do is just put the name of the report out there. So it's the Fordrock Consumer Identity Breach 2021 report 2021 is the third year i think that you guys have actually even we had you on the show before it was to talk about the breach report um you know my my favorite part i'm just gonna throw it out there was the stop drop and roll three things all enterprises should do to to should be doing to reduce breach threats and it was like stop using yeah. passwords Duh, we are yeah, yeah i mean it's like it's not as easy as it yeah, sounds yeah, but it can be done <laughs> It's it's like yeah it's like you should be breathing in and out but it's it's yeah anyway um, stop using static passwords drop into your users experience and roll cleanup so I thought that was really cool so I want to come back okay. to that um, but I want to hit you with a question what was the most unexpected finding from the report you know one unexpected finding I'll give you my pair of most unexpected findings the first one was that. The increase in username password based breaches was 450% over the last year. So maybe that it was happening, that it was creeping up on us is not unexpected, but I think that kind of increase is pretty, you know, eye-opening. So that's one. The other one for me was we actually found that the number of records breached actually went down. Uh, the number of breaches went down, but guess who's really suffering? Breaches of under 100 million records. We're still talking enterprises with maybe tens of millions of records at risk. Those breaches went up 50%. So it's basically saying the mega breaches that you hear about most often in the news, that's, um, you know, that's a worry. It's not, not a worry, but 
ordinary enterprises who might think they're a little bit under the radar, kind of security through obscurity, they have to take action too. Um, and you know, think about the JBS Foods um, ransomware. If you sort of go upstream to see what the problem was, it was an orphaned account. So there was unauthorized access by somebody who was using an account really they, that they shouldn't have been using. So actually that's, that's the kind of thing where IGA becomes important uh, to battle these things as well. But unauthorized access is like the or reason behind breaches, even if you can categorize them as other things. So, so seeing that 50% was really kind of a shock to me. I think that you're right. I mean, we're, you know, I, I wouldn't think of 2020 as the year of one of these mega breaches that was like hundreds of millions of records, but um, it's the frequency. And I think that the, the cyber gangs are really looking for quick and easy wins that they can get. And they're out there scanning the internet and looking for ways they can get in or they're purchasing credentials from the dark web or getting them through phishing scams. And, and really what, you know, the the conversation that we've been having a lot ourselves and with, with our guests is, you know, there's, it's almost like they've broken down the process in terms of there's one group that goes after, you know, the phishing scams or whatever, and then they don't even use the credentials to perform the attacks. They sell the credentials to the next oh, yeah. group that's going to go and do the attack. So it's kind of like, it's um, like a supply chain, a dark web supply chain that everybody's broken down and they do their part and it's very professionalized and automated and a little scary. And, and that steady drumbeat is the is. problem, right? It's like, we, we haven't gotten inured to it, but you know, it's just a constant steady pace of these things succeeding. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, you, you kind of led into it there, but the most common type of breach this year, what was it? And um, do, you, do you have any statistics on kind of how much it occurred? Number one, the previous year in our 2020 report was unauthorized access. Indeed, that kind of or uh, breach method. Um, and this year, it was also number one. It had increased. So it's now 43% of the causes of the breaches that we are we were looking at. Um, so, you know, that's, that's not the kind of number with a bullet that you want to see. Right. Absolutely. And what I thought was really interesting was when you start to break down the breaches that were in the report, it's like unauthorized access being 43%, yep. phishing 25%, malware, ransomware, 17%. Yep, um, you know, most of them are identity access management issues. I mean, the malware ransomware, how did that get in? We don't know, but we can be pretty sure based on other industry data that it's probably higher than 50%. This still comes back to somehow people are using credentials to break into companies to conduct their, their um, malicious intents. Yeah. I mean, what was astonishing to me, I guess, was that unauthorized access actually went up in its one number one position. Phishing went up in its number one and number two position. Ransomware went up in its number three position. And you're right that identity is a big part of, you know, helping to prevent all of these attacks. And it's no wonder, I think, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but the, but the CISA um, zero trust maturity model has these five pillars and it puts identity in the number one spot because you have to list them in some order. But I think that that is really where, you know, you have to start first if you want to do the best job and have the most impact most immediately. I think anybody who's paying attention to the news is probably going to get this next one or be able to guess it even if they haven't read the report. But the question I wanted to ask is what sector of business had the most breaches 
and here's more important and why what and, and whether you got the information from the report or i'm going to ask you to maybe um mm-hmm. expand or or interpret. try to <laughs> use interpret yeah read, read the tea leaves why do you think that that sector is getting breached the most healthcare was the sector. Maybe we should do quizzes. I don't know if you guys do quizzes with your audience, but you know, maybe there could be fabulous prizes. But unfortunately, healthcare was the most breached sector. And I mean, here's the interpretation. Um, it's got super valuable data. Um, it, you can perpetrate a lot of really interesting theft and fraud with health data, health insurance data. Uh, insurance fraud is rampant. Um, and a lot of times, hospital institutions, practices, these, you know, these folks who are having to protect all of this data, they're kind of um, stressed and strained with their capabilities of doing so. Um, and when you see these, like, for example, ransomware attacks happen, you know, they're trying to keep people alive. Um, and I just saw in the news uh, just very recently that uh, a hospital is being sued because of, you know, an unfortunate death of a child that, you know, the the parent is attributing to the fact that they had this attack and they weren't responding quickly enough. I, you know, I don't know how that will come out, but, um, you know, lives are at stake. So they do what they have to do. Yeah. If anything, I I would think that if, well, I mean, do the people who are doing these attacks have morals? I I don't think we know that, right? Uh, Objectively, I'm going to say no. Yeah, I mean, okay, so we don't know that for no. for a fact one way or the <laughs> other, but I would think that that I would really think that the criminals in most of the cases are after money, right? So killing people is not really their motivation. It's interesting because I had kind of a different list in mind and I wanted to bounce it out. I, I think the things that you mentioned there, you know, the the motivation again around money is that they can really monetize stolen data. Uh, my thought also is, you know, with uh, healthcare organizations I've worked with over times, it, it's not like, you know, in the financial world where you have Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and you have these mega corporations that are running the financial services industry. Now, there are smaller banks, so don't get me wrong. Um, but on the healthcare side, there's not mega healthcare organizations as much as on like financial services. So you have smaller businesses, and I think they tend to be underinvested in terms of securing their IT infrastructure. So you have two things working as like it's a small company, which by the way, so that's where we're seeing all the growth in these data breaches in smaller companies, and then they're underinvested. Yeah, and, and they're underinvested because they've, you know, their priority is not money. I mean, it's funny, I've been part of, you know, maybe some panels at conferences around comparing healthcare and financial services approaches to things like um, open APIs. You know, how do you have kind of this common infrastructure that is both secure and has a good experience and everything? And you you don't get into a shouting match exactly, but, you know, there's different motivations for securing what's there. Um, it's, it's money, it's people's livelihoods and savings and everything. Yes, it is. But people's bodies is, you know, kind of different. And, um, and hospitals really do struggle. And I think um, also health healthcare payers uh, can also struggle because they have, you know, increasingly complex um, enterprise environments. There's a lot of M&A going on in particular in that sector. And that can also present opportunities for bad actors. 
So uh, they, they got a lot of priorities on their plate and, you know, I, I get it. I think there's tools that we can bring to bear in the modern era to help, but it, you know, it takes some time and there is kind of a, kind of a maturity model. Well, I think it's a little bit leaky too, almost by design, right? You've got all these different spokes and no real main central hub. So now you've got spokes connecting to spokes, <laughs> plus you've got the payers, the doctor's offices, you know, all the different places where, you know, this, some of this information is, is meant to be shared and be portable and be able to move between provider to provider. And it may not even nece be necessary for the main provider to be breached. They could come in through any number of doors, right? And I think that, that certainly adds the challenge in the healthcare environment. I see that, you know, potentially as well on the finance side. Uh, you know, finance tends to be a little more funded when it comes to security measures. Um, but I, I think just the nature of the industry does not lend itself well uh, to having this sort of decentralized um, security across, you know, any number of thousands or maybe even millions of, uh, of entities that have these you know, sites of data. Yeah, so it's a really good point. The ecosystems involved in healthcare are, they're much wider and they're much deeper in a sense than they tend to be in finance. Just as an example, you may have, you know, somebody who helps with rehab and they're a third party provider with respect to, you know, whoever kind of prescribed the rehab and information needs to flow, really personal, <laughs> sensitive information needs to flow uh, in order to achieve the care. And, uh, you know, we can talk about you know, different funding models in the U.S. and, you know, how, how that all happens. But all of that contributes to complexity and, um, and to the danger. And it actually argues for that kind of interoperable, you know, we solved it originally with something like SAML, where, as I always joke, you know, you're having to fling identity information across the Internet <laughs> and you have to do it securely. And ultimately, you have to, you know, provide a good experience. And, and that flinging is what happens almost constantly in, in healthcare. It's why there's healthcare information exchanges. So yeah, point very well taken. I think one of the other interesting tidbits that I saw relative to ransomware in the report was um, about the willingness to pay ransom. And this kind of goes back to why is healthcare a target? I think it's that they're willing to pay ransoms, right? If you, if you hack a university or if you hack, um, uh, certain other industries, they will not pay a ransom. Government agencies will not pay a ransom, right? So if your motivation is getting paid, why would you even go after those industries? It's a soft target from that perspective. And so they, they go straight there. And this is one of the reasons why, um, you know, people have really got to be, uh, this is where healthcare needs to gain more practice, uh, testing their backups, um, seeing how long it takes to restore, because that's your window in which to avoid paying ransomware, um, and, and having those things under control as opposed to, well, theoretically we have a backup, you know, never used it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, with ransomware, you have the, the threat of a data breach, right. Which is a big part of the foot, which is what this report focuses on. But I think the bigger thing that's going to drive most organizations to pay a ransom, not to keep the data private, even though that, that, that becomes a cost equation. Okay. If we keep the data private, what is that data worth? The bigger question is if you shut down our operations and we have people in life support systems and we can't get alerts and things like that, and all you want is $10 million or maybe it's a lot less, maybe it's $100,000, maybe we just pay the $100,000 and 
hope that you go away and leave us alone and let our people live. You know, there, there's a saying that, you know, whatever you subsidize, you get more of. And I think we're currently in that cycle. <laughs> and it'd be great to be able to climb out of it. And of course, some of the tools that we have to go upstream and protect against even the placement of, of the ransomware can come from identity. And these days with people talking about passwordless more often, you know, just strengthening authentication methods and having them not be so awful in experience, I think would do a lot. So I think there's another impact of, you know, beyond just the ransomware uh, angle of it, which is financial impact in terms of fines and lawsuits. Uh, we definitely saw that with GDPR, um, you know, when, when some of the breaches occurred and companies that held financially liable for the the results of those breaches. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think some of that came out in the report as well. Um, yeah. So there's uh, it, those things get sort of added up into the cost to these enterprises of breaches. And by the way, um, the healthcare sector had the highest average cost per compromise record because, you know, they're, we're talking about, um, you know, maybe some some kind of ransom they might have to pay. Well, there's a lot of costs associated. There's you know, re-protecting systems, there's reputational damage and so on. So $470 per record, even though they didn't have, they had only 1% of the number of records compromised. So obviously each one is more, more valuable and more costly. Well, the other thing too is, you know, we're talking about health records. How do you replace or switch out a health record? You are who you are. Right? It's, the, it's you the biometric problem. You know, you can't revoke your fingerprint and hey, you know, your health record is going to be your health record. And if, and if you were to obfuscate it or to change things, you know, to fool anybody, um, you're not going to get the desired service, are you? <laughs> the only, the only successful opportunity I've seen of that would have been the movie face off. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that is a oh that is goodness. a scary thought. <laughs> oh, back to science fiction. So, Eve, one other question was um, with respect to the 2021 breach report. Where can people go ahead and download it? And by the way, it's been out for a better part of a year at this point. When can we expect the 2022 breach report? Are you guys already in the process of building that out? Um, yeah. So, I think it came out this year. It might have come out around. May or June, if I'm not mistaken. And um, and we do often look at like the first quarter's worth of data in the year that it's published in. Um, so I think what we'll do is we'll uh, begin fresh work on the 2022 report, um, basically once 2021 concludes and hopefully numbers, you know, hopefully numbers improve. What, what with this uh, zero trust mania, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> um, we'll hope that we'll see some, some added maturity in the various sectors. Um, so people can get uh, the report at fordrock.com slash resources. Uh, and there's actually a report and there's also a handy dandy infographic if uh, people want to sort of share that out as the, the easy one pager. Yeah, I love the infographic, but I do want to pick on something you just said there. So you mentioned zero trust. I, I think there's an overall mania <laughs> surrounding zero trust, right? The and tulip I, bulbs of the cybersecurity world. <laughs> no, no, I actually love it. <laughs> no, I love it too. I, I think it um, is a very useful concept. It's something that pretty much nobody will argue is not good. <laughs> but I th also think that there is some confusion, right? There's uh, there's kind of that new NIST 800-207 uh, standard, which kind of becomes the basis for what is your, a zero trust architecture for me anyway? It's not 
going out and buying a zero trust product to just plugging in some appliance on your network. It's a lot more than that. It's really uh, an overall architecture. Um, but I, I, my follow-up there was, were you implying that you expect that having, you know, having the whole world trying to get to zero trust is going to have a positive impact on these numbers next time the report is run? I, I hope so. I mean, it's hard to know if maybe we'll see it in some sectors and not in other sectors. Obviously, regulations and um, frameworks that are meant for, for example, the public sector, which is what we've seen out of the White House, for example, are going to disproportionately affect the public sector. But I'm seeing uptake, greater uptake as well in the private sector. Because if you ever frameworkify something, <laughs> if you ever boil something down the way zero trust is being boiled down now for easier consumption, well, you know, it's going to reduce the friction in adopting some of the best practices, right? So, I mean, one can dream. <laughs> some people call me a Pollyanna. But, I mean, the, the on-ramp does seem to be stronger authentication. And that is something that is getting, I would say, easier and easier. I mean, it's maybe not easy yet. Um, there's a lot of things to think about. One of the things that, you know, my team and I think about a lot is, how do you uh, improve the unhappy paths? Uh, because that's pretty much the sticking point most of the time. Uh, so, so let's let's see, shall we? I'd love to talk to you in a year's time or uh, at the appropriate time, and we can see what happened. This is one of those things where everyone wants to do it, but it I think it's going to take a while for people to actually start to put the tools and processes and collection of capabilities in place to actually make a dent on this. You know, I think with it becoming important now, so that leads me to believe, okay, we've got budget cycles, so maybe people start to put stuff in the beginning of next year or maybe mid-next year because they can't move on a dime, right, those sorts of things. So I, it wouldn't surprise me that we don't really see the benefits of, you know, quote-unquote zero trust for everybody <laughs> until 2023, 2024, and by then – Maybe zero trust isn't the fad anymore. Maybe there's something else. I think we're chasing a little bit here. <laughs> Negative trust. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right that it'll be little bits, and I'm, I'm sure you're right that it won't be a year, considering it's not a product that you put in. It's a, it's a mindset. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, what's the difference then between, you know, least privilege and zero trust? And getting to that sort of resource orientation is sort of the hardest part because it makes you want to do certain things inside out. Um and, and actually, for me, it's really natural just because, you know, if you look at NIST 800-207, um, you know, it has this kind of canonical architecture for zero trust. And there it is, plain as day, a policy decision point and a policy enforcement point. And those mechanisms are still not as common as they could be. And I think that's where, you know, helping make it easier, things like, you know, identity dissolutions in the cloud, can, can all accelerate adoption of, of some of the best practices. Well, that and there's always the even just, you know, the, the cheap and easy stuff, relatively speaking, right? Having better, stronger passwords, MFA in place, you know, improving user experiences, you know, cleaning up roles. And I know we're going to talk about AI here in a second, so maybe yeah. we can pivot to that in a minute. But there, there are things that organizations can do today that don't cost money in the terms of, I got to go get a new technology. It's administrative or analysis work to figure out, hey, you know, do we have a good inventory in our privilege access management? What is privileged access management? 
Are we cleaning out dead accounts, orphaned accounts, dormant accounts, whatever they might be? You're removing privileges when they're not needed. There's a lot of just basic identity hygiene. You know, I, you know, Jim and I like call it, you know, stupid I am. <laughs> stupid I am. But but it's hard. I mean, it's not, you know, here's people, you know, it's not, I don't know if, if, by, if by that you mean, you know, you can be stupid and do it or it's just the stupid stuff that just has to be done. And it's maybe boring, but it, but it is the blocking and tackling. Um, but here's the rub with some of it, not all of it, but particularly with things like cleaning up roles and finding the orphaned accounts, killing them. The, the number of stakeholders who have to be involved in all that, if you think about like access certification and access requests and that whole kind of all those life cycle pieces, the, I'm going to go back to incentives here. You know, whatever you penalize, you get less of. That's the corollary to whatever you subsidize, you get more of. And um, we're sort of penalizing doing a good thorough job of access certification and even proper consideration of access requests because we're asking humans to do things against data sets that can be quite quite huge. You know, if your organization has tens of thousands of entitlements or more, and I've, you know, I've talked to organizations who have more roles than people, like where do you even begin? How do you, you know, it's like you're looking through the wrong end of a telescope or something. It's just, you can't get perspective. And that's kind of why I like AI. It turns out to be a tool, you know, a job it's good at. I wanted to follow up on something Jeff was talking about of, yeah, the basic blocking and tackling of, you know, if we look at the um, three things that you can do uh, to reduce data breaches from the report, stop, drop, and roll, stop using static passwords. In other words, use MFA and um, passwordless. And I had a, a depressing moment this week. We we talked to one of the vulnerability uh, scanning experts in our company, right? We were just picking his brain a little bit on ransomware and He's like, you know, during when I'm hired as kind of the white hat hacker, one of the things he does is if he can get a credential and it's it's guarded by multi-factor, he'll try to find the credential where the person just, if it has a push authentication, they just accept it. So it's like, oh my goodness, like that is the, that's like the best thing we have, right? <laughs> that's the best protection we have and it's still potentially flawed. I think it does come back to user education. I know Jeff is real strong with this. Like we got to invest in user education, but gosh, like, you know, there's a, there's a big one. It's like, you just put a gun in somebody's hand and you didn't teach them how to use it. Yeah. That's pretty irresponsible, right? Yeah. Well, and that's where, you know, education, there's education and then there's education. I can't remember if we talked about this last year, but like, if there's just a training program where people are tested on their compliance to having gone through the, you know, video training, I, I don't find that as compelling as, once again, actual incentives and disincentives for doing the right and wrong things like, you know, having, you know, sort of mock phishing campaigns and reward the people who report it. Even if, you know, you get 10 people reporting it, you should get everybody reporting it if that's your policy, right? Um, phishing is just, you know, it, it was number two with a bullet, right? In the, in the report. And these are the kinds of things where um, people get the point if, their behavior is actually sort of molded uh, in, in an enterprise. Uh, and so, you know, I am personally not a big fan. I understand the reason for sort of compliance oriented training, but I'd rather have there be consequences. Um, and they can be positive consequences or negative consequences. 
Yeah, I think the, the key part there, right, is the, is routine training, right? A lot of organizations will do this checkbox, as you mentioned it, every year it's time for the annual privacy training, annual security training, whatever it may be. Uh, you know, I'll tell you right now, I, I got an email today um, that was a phishing email, and it was training. If I had clicked on it, I would have gone into the into the bad pile, <laughs> right, and gotten, gotten a nice email probably from our information security folks. But I spotted it, I knew it right away, and I'm pretty good about checking that kind of stuff. You've you've had the aversion training already, so you saw it, you're like, right. oh, exactly. So you know, we do it here, even you know, on, on our own side, the productivity side, but. That's, I think, the missing link is too many companies just do it once per year. Yep. And then it becomes you've got a whole other year and who knows what's going on. It doesn't instill that security mindset. Like, okay, is this a thing from information security? Are they testing me? Is this real? Whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So that education part of it, I think, is important to kind of keep things going uh, and to make sure that people stay vigilant because people will let down their guards, right? And Jim mentioned yeah. it with the MFA prompt. All of a sudden, you know, my phone is getting Microsoft security prompts. Is that me? Am I trying to do it? Is it because my phone is trying to connect through the exchange server and the mail app? You know, <laughs> I have so many different devices. I'm not sure what's real and yep. what's not. I just don't do it at any time and I'll <laughs> wait for something to fail. You know, that's maybe that's not a great user experience, but at least that way I know I'm not getting breached. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, it's funny talking about I'm, I hate to harp on this, but, you know, there you go. Um the, the experience oftentimes of doing access certifications is compliance driven. So it happens exactly when it has to, which is at every several months, you know, because Sarbanes-Oxley says, and, and it's painful and you don't do it again. And when you think about the value of deprovisioning access or accounts, I mean, it's tremendous value. It's critical for that kind of resource oriented thinking, the zero trust thinking. Well, can you get to a point where you could do access certification every morning? <laughs> you know, Agile says, if it hurts, do it more often. <laughs> and the point is not, you know, masochism. The point is to get better at it and make it hurt less. So it, it should be possible, actually, to be able to do that, you know, on a dime if you want to. And then you could prove to yourself anytime that you've reduced excess trust. So it's, it may not be 60 to zero in one year. <laughs> But uh, 60 to zero and maybe a couple, three years, you know, it's okay to get smarter. It's okay to get better. You know, I think that idea of doing a certification every morning uh, terrifies probably a lot of people (laughs) think about (laughs) how painful it is. But, you know, if you're in a mature organization, you've invested in your IGA capabilities and you're doing this where it makes sense, right? Maybe it's, hey, here's all the people who got added to domain administrator that didn't go through the normal kind of request process flow, maybe through your IJ platform, flag those, right? Or even better yet, just remove the remove the permissions, you know, automatically. That's the kind of stuff I think is kind of like smart IAM. It's taking advantage of the tools you have, knowing what your risk tolerances are, knowing you need to protect, and not just dumping this sort of information into a SIM somewhere that someone will discover six months later because they're investigating something. By that point, it's too late. Exactly. It's too downstream. It's, it's actually cheaper to catch it upstream if you can align the incentives. Um, like, I don't know, back in my old days of doing SGML, when it was a matter of, well, who tags the data? You know, who adds the metadata to the data? And when is it least expensive and most accurate to do that? And it's with the subject matter expert. Um, and oftentimes, the things you have people do in the process of IGA, they're they're kind of not subject matter experts. Like, you know, if you've got somebody who's the approver for some access that's been requested, do they know the context of why the access is being requested? You know, are are they left scratching their heads and going, well, otherwise it's going to prevent somebody from doing a job they need to do. So sure. (laughs) 
Um, so if you can provide that context, that's, you know, that's where we see AI coming in. Yeah. The old rubber stamping, right? And yeah, that's exactly. Kind of a... <laughs> or, or certification so and you've got a thousand of them to approve. You're like, yeah, I don't know. Yes, 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 yes. How fast yeah, can I it's click? So painful. <laughs> Select all. Yes. You know, <laughs> submit done. Right. Okay. This is a, it's a, it's a world record for the most, you know, uh, expedient access review ever. Um, you check something <laughs> off your to-do list too. Yeah, exactly. exactly. A... And then you get that endorphin rush. That's what they taught me in Franklin planner training anyway. <laughs> it's a win for everybody. Um, all right. So let's talk AI because we've been, we kind of teased at the top of the show. We're talking you know, around it. Movies. We're getting close yeah, to we're it. we're talking around it. All right. So tell me, tell me about your AI plans for world domination here. So it's a big brain. It sits in a vat. No. Um, <laughs> so we're particularly using artificial intelligence and, and we're particularly ensuring that it's explainable so that it's kind of a recommendation engine for all these use cases that we're talking about so that the people who are responsible for whatever their day job is can get a level of comfort that allows for eventual automation. And we call it autonomous identity. Um, and so, you know, thinking about IGA, you know, and why I can, I can go as far as saying it's blocking and tackling, but I don't know about simple and easy. Um, Gartner says that, you know, 50% of IGA projects are in distress. Um, We've got the problem of, you know, role explosion. And then if somebody wants to take a look at all of them, they'll just throw up their hands. Um, we had one a customer who was spending $12 million a year on supporting the people who were doing all those manual processes, all that, all those clicks that we were just talking about. And did $12 million a year. So it's, it's kind of, it, it might be easy. It might be simple. I don't think it's both. And most often it's neither. And so, you know, with the poor visibility into access risk, the poor quality that you get out of access certification through it's kind of nobody's fault. Um, the inefficient provisioning of access when you want to accelerate your business and then the inefficient, you know, operations, all the, the wasted effort. Um, that was something where we were looking at it going, yeah, an autonomous identity approach starts to make sense because what you can do is there's sources of data that you have all around your company, and you probably already hooked them up for other reasons, can you use them uh, to gain context to give the person who needs it, whether it's access request, access certification, um, all those different kinds of use cases, it's different stakeholders who have different reasons for wanting something. Can you use all that data to give them um, the, the tools they need to make the right decision or to uh, observe the, the transparency of, of the access that you've actually granted and know that it's correct. So give me a, give me a real world example here. Take me through, you know, let's, let's say me as the business, is this something that's the business is using, you know, as part of a recommendation engine or something like that? Or is this something like a security analyst or an IEM analyst might be looking at? So you could have a lot of different personas taking advantage of really the same engine. So there's different visualizations that you can put on top of it. So, I mean, executives have reason not to ever maybe look at the system, but they have incentives not to like go to jail <laughs> or pay big fines. Um, Cause they, in some cases they can personally go to jail, right? Um, risk and compliance leads obviously are a, a key persona for ensuring that an access certification um, is done expeditiously, but also, um, you know, accurately. Uh, and, and, uh, a CISO and all of their security staff have their own reasons for wanting to 
um, ensure least privilege. Maybe they've got like a zero trust roadmap that they're executing to. And so can they show these marks of things improving and getting better? And then, you know, the poor line of business managers and also the employees who are asking for access, um, they have their own role in this. But then you look at like IT staff, you know, CIO and all their staff. Sometimes you just kind of want to ensure you're paying less money <laughs> and doing more stuff. Uh, and then when I was thinking about all the different personas, you actually have to think about the bad actors and what, you know, their sort of golden opportunity and the way they'd like things to be. And the way they'd like things to be is actually how we have it now. Um, so it's kind of the reciprocal of the enterprise as a whole, its use case. So, so all of these folks can benefit from different visualizations over the same data. One of, one of the things that we uh, put a real emphasis on is, look, we know the average enterprise probably has, I don't know, two, three, five different IGS, IGA solutions. Um, entitlements might be being managed and roles might be ma managed in different tools across a large, maybe multinational or global corporation. It's hard to get your arms around all that stuff. So we are taking the approach of saying, oh, all that data is good with us. We actually have an IGA solution, but you don't even have to use that to get the benefit of, you know how you like train models. You need to have all and only the right data to get the right um, visuals on what's going on so that, so that you can then make a decision. So that's really what we're doing. It's like, you don't have to just take in data from you know some tool we made. You probably have five tools, and that's okay. Um, so yeah, I can give you a use case like you know what an access request looks like. It's, it kind of looks like it did before, only it's prettier <laughs> and faster. So one interesting use case I always thought of for identity administration when it comes to AI is to you know, take on what I call role exhaustion or identity management overload. It's when managers get so overwhelmed with all these access requests coming in. Does Jeff need access to the cafeteria calendar? It's like, who cares? Just give it to him. Right. So my thinking is, well, couldn't artificial intelligence weed those out? Right? Yes. Everybody Precisely. else in the department has the cafeteria well i i think i use the cafeteria menu example because it's easy to understand as a person i mean everybody gets that everybody should have access to the cafeteria menu at least on a read from a read perspective because it's zero risk right but there's other areas where it's a little bit more risk but if you take the confluence of factors of you know all the other people who have access to it jeff looks just like them you know, Jeff works from the home office and blah, 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 all these reasons, then you can say it's a reasonable amount of risk based on the risk tolerance that we have to just go ahead and send this through for approval because Jeff asked for it. Let's just give it to him. The potential is, is like, okay, now you're setting up some robot to use some mathematical calculation that people couldn't do in their own heads to determine whether or not Jeff gets that access. But what if Jeff actually shouldn't have got that access or now abuses that access? At some point, we need to do the re reverse course to see yeah. well, how in the world did Jeff get that access? Well, the computer, the, the computer decided he should get it. Okay, well, now we need to reverse the calculation to figure out how did the computer come up with that? Because ultimately, it might come down to a court case that we now actually have to prove, why did Jeff get that access? 
So that's why I say explainability, the concept, you know, kind of the formal term of art explainability as part of AI is so important and why I describe it as a recommendation engine approach. Like, you know, if you go into Netflix or similar and it says, well, we're recommending this movie to you because you watched Tank Girl. I don't know. Um, I like a movie. Um, Interesting so, choice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Tank Girl. Um, great music. Uh, and, <laughs> but there's actually- L7 like, shove, I'm with you. All right, go ahead. <laughs> um, but so there's a lot of different reasons why somebody might deserve access um, that aren't part of the usual, first of all, the usual calculation we tend to make, and second of all, could be more sophisticated or complex than what we're capable of doing in our heads at that moment that we're asked. Because, you know, sort of synchronous asking for something is like, okay, uh, go, do you know all the reasons why, you know, do you have all the context? Peer group analysis is what's quite often used, right? So is he part of, you know, the guy who wants access to this thing, is he part of this peer group that does roughly the same thing? Well, that might be the most important reason why somebody else next to him gets access. It might not. I mean, you can look at job profile, you can look at the department association, you can look at salary band, you can look at cost center, you can look at whether um, it's a certain training enrollment, uh, who's their manager, who's their manager's manager. There could be a lot of different reasons why an entitlement sort of got there in the first place. Um, and if you're just looking at their, their peer group, um, a lot of, in a lot of cases, what drives the affinity kind of between um, the user and the entitlement assignment to them, uh, it's mainly not because of the peer group they're in. So that's a pretty tall order for somebody to figure out when it's like asking for access to the cafeteria or something more sensitive. <laughs> the more sensitive it gets, the higher confidence you're going to want to have about the calculation that you're making. And that's where the approach we take is simply to say, here's the percent confidence that here's why you'd wanna do this. And then you can decide your own kind of what's green, what's yellow, what's red in terms of percentages. Like let's say it's, you know, bottom 20%, you should cut off all that excess. And up to 90%, we need to pump it through a workflow. 90% and above, I feel very comfortable going, sure. And that's exactly where it sort of encourages automation because it's telling you why, you know, which, um, which association rule was the strongest um, to let it, you know, give you, give you the confidence. So, so it's really not trying to be this black box or, you know, the, wor the worry that we have about, um, you know, data that was generated on its own by, by a brain in a vat. It's, it's more like, here's a support underneath you to let you feel confident in making a decision one way or another, or needing to go check it out for that matter. You'll know why you want to check it out. You'll know what's an outlier. You'll know what looks risky. I wanted to ask you a few other questions before we run out of time. So um, Jeff introduced you as the chief humanitarian. <laughs> uh, for those who don't know what that is, it's because of your role with the UMA standard, uh, user managed access. Any updates in the, on that front? Is that still moving along? Um, it is. Actually, there's been an interesting... Uh, thing happen in the last little while, which is, and this has been brewing for a while, there is a program in the UK called the UK Pensions Dashboard Program. Um, and it has been sort of chugging along, defining some standards for how, so a pension in the UK is like a, like a 401k here, a private pension. So, you know, your job might put aside money for you. And, and they have a state pension as well. And so the challenge is just as it is in the US that people will leave a job and they'll 
kind of forget or lose track, leave behind a significant chunk of money. And, you know, after, I don't know, 10 or 11 job changes, you're like, where did all that go? So the pensions dashboard program is intended to number one, um, help you discover where those, those, I think they call them pension pots are, but also bring those together in kind of a centralized dashboard and then let you share out that information selectively um, to let's say financial planners. And so this program has now um, kind of reached this new stage where they're starting to build it now. And it's based on the UMA standard and they profiled it. It's almost kind of like a, in a way, it's a financial services profile, security profile. Uh, of UMA. And so it's, it's kind of a quite exciting stage. That's really fascinating. Um, again, trying to stay within the amount of time that, that you've graciously allotted us today. Um, I think, you know, Jeff talked about the Identirati. Anybody who's been in this industry long enough has seen thousands of Venn diagrams at presentations. <laughs> uh, I know you're working on a new Venn diagram. Um, and for those who don't know, that's kind of the the circles overlaid partially over one another, and then you get kind of the sweet spot. So, like maybe a Venn diagram of usability and security, right in the sweet spot would be um, passwordless technology. Um, but your new one has the four P's, so maybe you can talk us through that. Well, I appreciate your asking about this. You know, for some time I've been talking about the drivers of identity, the business drivers of identity. And in fact, two of the P's have to do with security and experience, protection and personalization. And I think it's fair to say that for 10 years, at least, the identity world, um, and I consider you both Identorati, by the way, um, have, have known that you really have to do better than saying, oh, you have to balance these two, right? You know, our, we call it access without compromise. You need to be able to achieve access for legit folks that is um, a pleasant experience. Uh, you know, our, Forge Rock exists on earth to help people safely and simply access the connected world. Okay, so it has to be the right people and they have to be able to do that in a great, you know, a great experience, have a great uh, time doing it. <laughs> um, but, um, but there's more to the picture. And the third set in that Venn that I talked about for a long time was payment. Um, and I think we're seeing, you know, all kinds of ways in which transactions need to be um, deeply identity supported. But the fourth P, um, and this shouldn't be new, but it is kind of new, I think, in the picture given recent sort of developments, is people. You know, it can't just be compliance-oriented that we do privacy. Um, UMA was actually an early sort of uh, harbinger of the need, that's not the right word, um, an example of enabling person-to-person -person interactions, multiple identities uh, in the same interaction. There's a lot of use cases where we have we don't see this as identity relationship management, but it really is. So protection, personalization, payment, and people. And at the center of that, all of them need uh, trust. All of them need privacy. All of them need security. Um, and all of them actually kind of need trade in today's world. So... So that's the new van. I got pictures. <laughs> People can get in touch with me if they want to see pictures. <laughs> I was going to ask if this was documented somewhere. So, so I captured protection, personalization, payment, and people as the four Ps. Did I get that? Yes, that's correct. And it sort of looks like 
Well, some people think it's a flower. Other people think it's a B2 bomber. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Yikes. Okay, well, I guess uh, the mind sees what it wants to see in that it's case. A, it's the identity Rorschach test, right? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Well, you've been super generous with your time. I do want to you know, be cognizant of that, but it would not be a conversation with Eve without having something musically oriented because of your role in uh, ZZ Off, the uh, <laughs> official band of the Identorati. I guess I could safely say that at this point. Uh, uh, before, I, I, I meant to ask this before, but you know, when is ZZ Off going to make a comeback? We have to, I think, have a full identity conference somewhere. No hybrid. Everybody's forced to be there. And I think uh, we, that might just be the magic circumstance for us to show up. We're, we're talking about some sort of revival uh, gigging next year, although not at a conference. So stay tuned. Gotcha. Maybe you do like a Twitch stream or something like that. Oh my God, sure. Why not? <laughs> well, maybe not because they just got hacked. So we probably don't want to. <laughs> maybe. Well, we'll see. Never mind. Let's go different. We can route. fix it for them and then play. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what I want to do is kind of pull us, start to pull us up to the surface here and end on a little bit of a lighter note. And given your, your musical pedigree, here's my question for you this week. It's, I want you to assemble a music supergroup. Tell me who's in that group and what song are they going to cover? So vocals, <sighs> whatever your band looks like, vocals, guitar, drummer, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just okay. one person. I don't know. But what's your supergroup look like and, and what's the song they're going to sing? Uh, this will expose, you know, what era I'm really from, but a lot of people know about me that I love Queen, so Queen figures fairly large uh, in my in my sketch here. I think it's got to have Freddie Mercury and Brian May, uh, so that's vocals, guitar. And I was thinking, uh, maybe I have to reach out to Rush. We need Getty Lee and Neil Peart. So um, we've got them, and I thought I would add Sting because... What I really want to hear is uh, a bluegrass remake of Tie Your Mother Down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't Freddie know if I always... know that <laughs> Oh, you don't? Oh, my gosh. So this was a song I had the, the good fortune of uh, getting to sing at Identiverse, I guess it was two years ago, uh, when we were at the Museum. Uh, it's, a, it's off of Queen 2. So highly recommended. I bet you know this song. It's been on the radio. I probably do and just haven't heard it. I, I definitely like Queen. Um, I have a Queen song. Maybe I'll save that for a lighter note at, at some time in the future. But All right. We'll uh, talk. <laughs> yeah. Jim, how about uh, yourself? What does your, your super band look like? Vocals, Robert Plant. Guitar, Jimmy Page. Drum, John Bonham. That is definitely a super group. What's the song they're singing? Uh, well, any Led Zeppelin song you can think of. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, okay. If I have to pick a song, I'm going to go with Whole Lot of Love. Uh, I'm going to go with... All right. So lead singer is going to be Chris Cornell. And then we're going to have Tom Morello and Dave Mustaine on guitar. And they can duke it out over whoever wants to be lead in rhythm. <laughs> nice. Um, and, and then we'll have Dave Grohl on drums. And they're going to, and this will show you my, my era. I'm definitely a, a 90s alt rocker. It smells like teen spirit from Nirvana. <laughs> That's what I'm going to have them awesome out too <laughs> very nice grunge yep total total grunge rocker if it's either that or i'm listening to some sort of electronic edm or something so i played it safe this time otherwise they'll just be like oh it'll be i don't know dead mouse or skrillex or somebody like that <laughs> yeah and very my nice. my pick with all the led zeppelin was you know that's what i've been listening to a lot on my uh my i 
my iPod lately. Showing your age. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> yeah. There you go. All right. Well, let's start to wrap up things here. Uh, before we go, any final thoughts? Uh, Eve, what should people be taking away from this conversation? You know, the key finding, I guess, from the report. And what's the one tip you can give them uh, that will that they should take away and do something about it? I would say, you know, what, one of the other things that we learned from the report is that the amount of time people spent online more than doubled. So more than seven hours per day in the course of this whole kind of pandemic and lockdown experiences. So when you move into the digital world that rapidly and that totally, um, identity is more important than ever. And, you know, talking about the four Ps, every single one of them really is important. And so I think it's, it's not too soon for any organization to think about getting on that kind of zero trust I was going to say ladder, but if you want to go from 60 to zero, maybe it's getting into that race car and stopping all the brakes. I don't know. Um, just taking one action and then taking the next action, put one foot in front of the other. And I think small changes will make a big difference so that, so you're not a soft target. And so you don't present a terrible experience to, to anybody, whether it's end users or whether it's your you know, line of business managers. Uh, I think we can improve the experience for everybody. Eat the elephant one bite at a time. There you go. Jim, how about yourself? Final words of wisdom. Final words. So I think reports like this really help position our listeners, the IAM practitioners in selling identity and access management for the appropriate level of importance that it serves in protecting your organization. Uh, things like password lists, things like even the, the stuff that doesn't cost and you're a lot of money, like cleaning up all those dead accounts, getting a, your arms around service accounts and changing the passwords that haven't been changed in six years. Like those are the things that um, have to get done so that you're not kind of the, the data going into this breach report, but use the breach report. Use it as part of your business case. That's my final word. Uh, so with that, we're going to go ahead and leave it for this week. Um, we're going to have a whole bunch of links in the show notes. We'll have a link to Eve on LinkedIn, as well as her currently dormant uh, Twitter account, XML Girl. Uh, who knows? Maybe we'll see a return there. We'll have a link definitely to the Fordrock 2021 Consumer Identity Breach Report, uh, to the NIST 800-207-0-TRUST uh, publication. We'll have a link to Vittorio and Off Zero's Identity Unlocked podcast. Uh, obviously, we have links to Jim and I on LinkedIn. Always happy to connect with folks who are listening and looking for ideas on you know topics that might be interesting for people. And then you can always connect with us online. Uh, we're on the web, identityatthecenter.com. And we're also on Twitter at IDAC Podcast. So with that, I want to thank you, Eve, for joining us. Jim, thank you so much for your time. And we'll talk with everyone in the next one. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.